John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition wherever you get your podcasts. New CBS Monday. NCIS is back. We need all hands on deck. So grab your gear. NCIS! And join our elite team. What are the charges? Murder. New cases to be solved. Double tap to the chest. Same caliber as the murder weapon. And new criminals to catch. That's the bomb maker. Where's the bomb? A new NCIS, Monday, 9, 8 central, on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Welcome to another episode of Star Trek The Pod Directive. I am one of your hosts, Paul F. Tompkins. I'm the other one of your hosts. I'm Tawny Newsom. What's going on? What's going on as Marvin Gaye once asked us musically? Do you think he ever got an answer? I don't know. I feel like in concert, he definitely should have said, all right, I'm going to sing the song. And then afterwards, we I will get some answers. We're going to bring the house lights up. Uh-huh. And then <laughs> you will tell me what is going on. Yeah, I uh, I bet people had a lot of thoughts. I mean, those are turbulent times. These are turbulent times. We could sing what's going on over and over and probably still never get a satisfactory answer. Why do we have to live in the turbulent times? Um, what was the point of the previous turbulent times if we're still doing this? Yeah, when do we get to smooth air, <laughs> Captain? I'm sick of going through a little chop. <laughs> yeah. I don't want the flight attendant seated right now. <laughs> I want beverage service. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that guy, the JetBlue guy who quit by getting on the loudspeaker? I think he said, (laughs) fuck you to everybody. What? Yes. He, this was a flight attendant on a JetBlue flight. He grabbed some uh, Heineken's and he hit the, uh, the slide, (laughs) the water landing slide. Oh, I love this. (laughs) And that's how, that's how he quit his job. I love this. Listener, dear listener, I promise we'll get to the Star Trek. This is a Star Trek podcast, I promise. But this is important, dear listener. This is if important. you have access to a slide at yes. your place of work and you go to quit that job, you must take the slide. Yes. So this applies to anyone who works at a water slide uh, amusement park. Yeah. Uh, what other places of slides? Uh, play, playground factory. Playground factory. Yep. You got to <laughs> take a slide right out the door. Uh, 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 Firehouse? I guess you could slide down the pole. Uh, what what if firemen had to go down a playground slide to get out? <laughs> oh, that is weird that, okay, so our rambling actually walked us into a relevant topic. Um, sorry, guys. Speaking of, yeah, sorry, sorry, we guys. Got, sorry, we accidentally <laughs> walked into a relevant topic. <laughs> no, but I don't know if anyone, I mean, not any of you have to follow my Instagram, but mm-hmm. I just got home this weekend from Atlanta and I took some videos of my property. I live out in the middle of nowhere. And um, we were right in the middle of one of the big Southern California fires back in September. I have a house, everything's okay. But I kind of wanted to like walk around and show people all of the things that the firemen were able to save, first of all, but also all of the damage and destruction to our natural environment out here. We live in a really rural place and we lost a lot of like trees and shrubs and acreage and um, just kind of put you know, something that wasn't the news for people to look at. Like if you know me or you follow me, like this is a very personal thing that happened to me. And just to point to the fact that, you know, I come from a couple generations of Californians and I've always lived rurally. And it's so clear to us that these things are getting much worse. And it is wild to me that there are people who live in this very state who don't believe that the climate is changing and that things are getting hotter and bad and human activity is uh, causing 
things to be bad. That, that's wild to me that those people exist. So yeah, I don't know. that That's still pinned on my Instagram if you want to go look at, I don't know, what a bunch of burned up trees look like. It's a little <laughs> depressing, but. Now on that topic, how is Trudy? Trudy, okay, so I famously <laughs> have an antelope squirrel that um, my husband trained to sit on his knee and his shoulder. <laughs> we have not seen her in a little while, but. Oh. I don't know what their their range of, you know, I don't know what their territory range is. Right, right, right. She could be on vacation. I did not know that she was an antelope squirrel. Uh, I thought she was maybe a chipmunk. And I've also never heard of antelope squirrels. Look, I have an app, Paul. I point <laughs> it at plants and animals and it tells me what they are. So that's the only reason I know <laughs> what Trudy is. <laughs> Well, Trudy, if you're listening, uh, we love you <laughs> and we hope to see you again soon. So all of that was to get us to starting to talk about our lovely guest, Bill McKibben, a, a climate change scientist, an expert. A, he's written numerous books about the topic, a really a fountain of knowledge, a fount of knowledge, a font, a font of, knowledge. of knowledge. I think either one's fine. All right. Well, listener, you weigh in. Tell me which one you want. Um, but he knows a lot. And Paul got to sit down and chat with him. But, um, you know, I was thinking about how Trek has always dealt with the understanding of climate change as just a fact to me. It seems like, yeah. you know, there there weren't a lot of episodes that really hammered home greenhouse gases or whatever. It wasn't overt, but the the mere treatment of taking care of the earth and environmentalism was just baked into 24th century ideals mm -hmm. in a way that to me was always really profound. I think of episodes like uh, Force of Nature from The Next Generation, which had to do with um, the pollution of space from warp technology. Uh, I even think about the Picard episode, The Inner Light, where he believes he's li lives in a little village somewhere instead of being a captain. And it's all very... <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia and that it takes place in like 20 minutes, but he lives like a full lifetime. Um, yeah. But on that planet, how they were dealing with the effects of the sun and. Yeah. And I think even before it was as uh, talked about as it is now, certainly, you know, that whether whether you believe in uh, climate change or not, everyone uh, certainly uh, talks about it more than they did back then. And, you know, like I'm a bit older than you, so I remember when recycling or anything like that was looked at as sort of hippy dippy. And that was almost like a, a sketchy kind of joke, you know, people that would, that cared about the, like Greenpeace, you know, anything, anything where somebody cared about the earth was like, okay, whatever. Woo woo. And now that we are all, you know, loading our glass bottles into specific trash cans and stuff like that, you know, and then also being told, yeah, that doesn't really do anything either. <laughs> yeah. You know, that we have started ourselves down a path that is, oh, going to be so difficult to reverse and to mitigate even. It's really scary. And it's it's very, uh, you know, one of the things when I was talking with Bill that I was, you know, very much keen to know, <laughs> is it too late and what can we do? You know, because yeah. it is, it's overwhelming. You know, when you think about it, yeah. it's really overwhelming and, and, in our lifetimes, like, I don't know what truly horrible things I'm going to see by the time I'm gone. You know what I mean? But knowing that not that long after I'm gone, even if we start doing stuff right now, even if the Green New Deal is enacted today, you know, mm -hmm. there's still some uh, damage that's going to be irreparable. 
And we're going to lose some things that we really don't want to lose because we didn't act fast enough. And it's, look, it's very sad, but trying to have hope is what Trek is all about. And the idea that what, one of the things that I love about Trek is the idea that it acknowledges what fuck ups we are as a species, Mm -hmm. but says eventually we get it together. Yeah. And you got to hope that we get it together, but the, you know, it, it's really terrible to be living through, you know, times that would be referenced in Star Trek that would have, yeah. would normally be in our sort of distant the future. Days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> These turbulent times. Yeah. So when you see <laughs> yeah. them talk about, when you see them talk on any Trek about some weird time in the 21st century, it's like, no, that's us. Yeah. Oh, we have to deal with that. Yeah. I was even thinking it was funny. Um, I rewatched The Inner Light somewhat recently and just watching, you know, there's the scene where fake Picard, I think his name was Cayman, uh, Mm -hmm. his daughter, his adult daughter comes into the room and he's like, you shouldn't be outside for so long. And she's like, I wore all your skin protective garment. And you look at her and she's just wearing exactly what I have to wear to go outside at my house. (laughs) (laughs) Like just a big straw hat, long sleeve, probably some sort of SPF. And this is in a sci-fi show about a wild planet that is being killed by the sun. And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is me now. (laughs) But yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, I I have hope. We were talking before the record about the Generation Z, which I, mm-hmm. I found it, it tickled me, Paul, that you said the whole word Generation Z. I, I feel like everyone says Gen Z. So I really like it. It gave a nice formality. I, you know why I said that? Because I was going to say Zoomer and then I changed my mind. I was like, I don't want to say Zoomer. Ah, <laughs> uh, but you had to dress it up a little bit. I, <laughs> I had to dress it up a little bit. <laughs> oh, Paul, always in a suit and tie, even in his words. Um <laughs> But yeah, I I have hope that that generation is, you know, going to take care of some things. They're definitely more driven than my generation was. I mean, millennials are getting better now about our, Mm -hmm. you know, stain of apathy we kind of started out with. But um, yeah, I have have hope, especially all the young Trek fans out there. I, I see a lot of fans and stuff on Twitter that are raising really cool, thoughtful, smart young people to watch Trek and those ideals get baked in about taking care of this earth so that one day we can fly around on starships and only go back to earth when we want to go to a cool winery. Yeah. <laughs> and, th- and throw mud at each other. Yeah. That's all earth <laughs> will be needed for. That's right. You visit your family, throw mud at each other, and then everything's great. Anytime they go to San Francisco in Star Trek, it's always like futuristic, but it's lush. You know, it looks yeah. like it's green. There's trees. So that that that's hopeful in and of itself. Somewhere between the dystopia and the utopia lies what we're going for is we do mm. want it to be green everywhere, but we don't want it to be growing through the buildings. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we do yeah. What's between dystopia and utopia? Just like fine? Yeah, just fine. Things are fine. Let's make everything literally fine. Not not on fire, wearing a hat, wearing a little hat sitting at a table having a cup of coffee. <laughs> This is fine. That dog doesn't know what he's talking about. It's not fine. Somebody needs to tell him. Somebody (laughs) needs to get that dog out of that burning house. All right. This has been We Describe Memes to You. (laughs) (laughs) And you can has cheeseburger. That's right. I'm going way back. Wow. OG meme. OG meme. That's what they call me. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to start from now on. All right. I accept it. I accept that mantle. Speaking of mantle, the earth has one. Uh, It also has a crust and a core. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we talked with Bill McKibben. Oh, you're passing some type of verbal captcha just now. <laughs> Man, woman, camera. Uh, yes, I talked with Bill McKibben about the scariness and uh, how things could be not so scary. Uh, he's a, a brilliant man and, and author, and it was comforting to listen to what he had to say. So uh, hopefully people will feel the same way. Check it out. That interview after this break. Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney, the voice of Korra on The Legend of Korra. And me, Dante Bosco, the voice of Zuko on The Last Airbender and General Iroh on The Legend of Korra. Each week, we'll recap and discuss another episode of The Last Airbender. I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but... Amazing guests stop by from creators to cast to super fans to chat all things Avatarverse. Are we saying that this is possible in the Avatar universe? Varney, we gotta spread the word. Now fans can also check out our weekly video pods too by subscribing to the official Avatar YouTube channel. That's a lot of fire, isn't it? That's right, we're on video this season, everybody. So whether you're a super fan with encyclopedic knowledge or you're brand new to this incredible world, it's Fire Nation time, Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Paul. You will notice that Tawny is not here for this interview. When you hear it, it's just going to be me talking with Bill McKibben. Don't be scared. Bill McKibben is an environmentalist, an author, and a professor of environmental studies at Middlebury College. In 1989, at the age of 29, McKibben published his first book, The End of Nature, the first popular book about climate change. He's been a leading voice in the conversation about global warming for 30 years. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for appearing with us on the show. Well, Paul, what a pleasure, and and I'm a fan, so it's good to be. Uh, it's good to good to get to actually talk to you. Oh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Let me, speaking of fandom, let me ask you, what is your relationship, if any, to the Star Trek franchise? Well, I'm an old person. So, you know, I actually <laughs> uh, watched the Star Trek in its original incarnation back when it was just a television show, before it was— Oh, and you're talking the originals? Yeah, yeah, you know, Leonard Nimoy, before it was a cult, just when it was a thing that was on TV some nights, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. So I remember uh, watching it and thinking about it then. And what? how old were you when you were watching that show? I would have been seven, eight, nine, you know, the, those early seasons, so just the right age. Wow, yeah, absolutely. And you wrote your first book about climate change when you were pretty young. Yes. I wrote the, the first book about climate change for a general audience, a book called The End of Nature that came out 30 years ago this autumn. So I guess I was 27 when I wrote it and 28 when it came out. And what drew you to that subject and what made you passionate about it? Well, at first, I thought it was, you know, I'm a journalist. I was, uh, as I'd gone straight from college to work at the New Yorker magazine, writing the talk of the town and so on. And so I, you know, I thought it was the great untold story of our time and still do think it's the most, you know, greatest journalistic story there has ever been. Um, but in the course of writing that book, I quickly discovered that I didn't really have journalistic objectivity in that, uh, you know, I, I care deeply about whether or not the world 
uh, you know, burned up and withered away. I didn't want that to happen. So I, I couldn't really be a beat reporter about it in a newspaper, but I've uh, spent 30 years writing about it a, a, as a sort of opinion journalist and a researcher and in the last 15 or 20 years as an activist uh, hard at work on trying to somehow slow down this train of climatic upheaval. That's a very dramatic turning point to realize as a as a journalist that you care too much about this subject to be objective about it. But it is also it seems so funny that it's a thing that obviously everyone should care about <laughs> and that to have an objective viewpoint of whether or not the earth burns to a cinder is, uh, is kind of uh, darkly funny if you think about it. Yes. Uh, objectivity in this case is highly overrated. It actually led <laughs> too many journalists for too long to sort of treat the whole thing as a he said, she said sort of right. story. And that did not help. It's only in the last few years that we've begun to see truly great journalism from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and a bunch of others who have done remarkable work, not only on the science, but on the really basic task of uncovering the fact that the fossil fuel industry knew everything about all this, you know, back yeah. in the 1980s, and then spent decades staging a completely phony debate about whether or not global warming was real. Uh, you know, a debate both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of them was willing to lie. And, and it became the most consequential lie in human history because it cost us 30 years when we should have been working on this. And now, you know, half of California is on fire and, uh, you know, we're losing islands and so on. I mean, we're in hideous trouble now. The predictions in your book, falter are uh, rather bleak. Uh, there's disruption of photosynthesis, diseases released from permafrost, mass starvation, brain damage from high carbon dioxide levels. When you first started writing about climate change, did you think you'd ever be expressing predictions of our future in such dystopian sci-fi terms? Not exactly. I mean, we knew very early on. I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 that first book I wrote about it had the cheerful title, The End of Nature. Mm -hmm. So we knew that we were in trouble early on, and the science was pretty clear. But scientists are conservative by nature, and so they've underestimated all the time how bad the damage would be. I mean, the kind of things we're seeing now, the melt of more than half the sea ice in the summer Arctic, the decimation of coral reefs, these things were supposed to happen in the 2080s or the 2140s or things. So, I mean, the, the motto for climate scientists in the last 10 years has been faster than expected. The other thing we didn't anticipate 30 years ago was that governments would do nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think my assumption as sort of a normal, rational human being was, look, uh, scientists who the, are the people who are good at this have issued a strong, profound warning about what's going to happen if we don't do something. So let's do something. Uh, but our governments were so effectively captured by the fossil fuel industry that precious little's gotten done. And so the temperature just keeps going up. You know, we uh, 2019 was the second hottest year on record and the hottest year without a big El Nino event to kind of juice the temperatures. We had the hottest month ever recorded in our planet this last year. August was the hottest month there ever was. I mean, we're in a world of hurt now, and we're still pretty near the beginning. We've raised the temperature one degree Celsius, and that's caused the chaos that I've described. But we're on path to raise the temperature on 
current trends, even if we kept the promises we'd made at the Paris Climate Accords, the temperature would go up about three degrees Celsius, uh, six, you know, five, six degrees Fahrenheit. If that happens, you know, we cannot have civilizations like the ones we're used to having, period, end of story. It seems staggering to think that there are people that know that this is happening and don't care. Like the nihilism of that, of there's enough people in charge, in power, that are saying, "Mm, I mean, this doesn't really affect me. I'll be gone before, you know, most of these changes really start to affect the public at large. And of course, I can live comfortably because of wealth or because of power until I'm gone and it really just takes over the entire world. And then you also have the people that aren't in power that don't want to uh, admit that there's climate change because it's just too scary to admit that this is what's happening and that there are people that could be doing something about it that aren't. Well, that's, I mean, I think that all of that is true. The weird thing is it should be much less scary now in a way than it was even 10 or 20 years ago because the engineers have done their job to a fairly well. I mean, they've dropped the price of a solar panel about 90% in the last decade. So it's not like it's even that hard to figure out what we need to do now. You know, we need to put up a lot of solar panels and a lot of wind turbines. That's the single most important. And then we need to electrify everything that we can so that our buses and cars run on all that electricity that we can generate cleanly. That's not simple or easy or cheap to do, but it's definitely doable. And it would save us huge amounts of money in the long run, and it would provide a lot of jobs along the way. So, uh, you know, the the, the kind of arguments for doing nothing are actually dumber than they were uh, even a couple of decades ago. But none of this reaches you if you own a coal mine or an oil well. They've demonstrated that they are willing to do what it takes to maintain their business model a few more decades even at the cost of breaking the planet. It's not that there's any argument about what the eventual outcome is going to be. 75 years from now, we're going to run the planet on sun and wind because it's so much cheaper. But if it takes us 75 years to get there, the planet that we run on sun and wind is going to be a broken planet. When you talk about the idea of lost time, of, of you know, that we should, have, we should have started taking some of these precautions three decades earlier, what are the things that are irreversible because of that lost time? So, look, there are things we're not going to get back. No one has a good plan for refreezing the Arctic now that it's melted. There are disturbing signs that we may have destabilized already the great ice sheets of the Antarctic, and that's really bad news because the kind of inertia, the momentum that builds up there, you know, last centuries. And there are really tragic losses that have come already. Uh, You know, the Great Barrier Reef is the largest living structure on planet Earth, but it's half as living as it was three or four years ago. The coral reef scientists are pretty clear at this point that even if we do everything right, we're going to lose that incredibly interesting corner of God's brain, you know, in the next few decades. So there's already lots of pain and loss. And of course, it hits hardest those who have done the least to cause it. At this point, we're not trying to stop global warming. We're trying to stop it from going so fast and so hard that it just overwhelms our ability to have societies. And that's why it's so interesting maybe to think about this sort of from the lens of a planet, which is, you know, something you can do if you're thinking about Star Trek or science fiction. But it's not something we do very often. Uh, You know, we all seem to live 
on a flat piece of cozy, homey earth that we recognize. And so it keeps us from thinking very often that, in fact, the earth is a planet just like Mars or Venus or whatever. You know, its physical systems are the single most important thing about it. As far as space exploration goes, is that helping us to understand Earth's vulnerability, or are we also using that to maybe find a new home once we completely trash this one? Well, certainly in the past, it's been useful. You know, NASA's provided some of the best information that we've had about what's going on on this planet. And they actually described their work for years as a mission to planet Earth was one of their big, you know, mission statements. Uh, needless to say, under the Trump administration, we've stopped all that kind of nonsense. And NASA is not really supposed to be doing any of that anymore. Now we're privatizing the exploration of space. I end this book faltered down at Cape Canaveral watching Elon Musk loft one of his SpaceX rockets into the stratosphere. And, you know, I'm enough of a child of the space age of the 60s and 70s to be moved by that and to see it, uh, you know, was a wonderful thing. On the other hand, there's something a little disconcerting about the fact that the one thing that unites all the richest guys on the planet is that they're all trying to leave, you know? <laughs> Granted, we might be better off if they all made it off to Mars and spent their time peddling each other, you know, Amazon coupons and things. But still, there's something mildly disconcerting and mildly annoying about the fact that they're not using that wealth to try and do the work that we need done here on the one planet that we've got. I, you know, what we've known, what we've learned in the years since Star Trek debuted about the rest of the cosmos is <laughs> it's not exactly, I mean, as far as we can tell, it's not really, in the end, filled with Klingons. Uh, we seem to mostly be it. The most hospitable other corner of our galaxy that we've been able to ascertain is way less hospitable than the least hospitable square meter of our planet. <laughs> you know, find the driest desert in the middle of the Sahara, the deepest trench in the Pacific, and it's way more conducive to life than any other place we've found on, uh, you know, out in space. So I think we'd be smart to treat our world with some of the same kind of wonder and interest that the crew of the Enterprise kept treating the places that they stumbled into in their voyages. I can remember that when they would land, uh, someone would always, the minute that they touched on alien soil, somebody would pull out a tricorder and sample the air. Mm -hmm. And that was like the, the the first job was to find out, which is actually a good first thing to sample so you can <laughs> figure out if you're going to be able to breathe or not or whatever. Well, look, if you sample our air, it's way different than it was for all the rest of human history until the last you know few decades. The atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide has gone from 280 parts per million to about 410 parts per million. That doesn't sound like so much, but because the molecular structure of CO2 traps heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space, it's the equivalent, the heat equivalent every day of exploding 400,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs. That lets you know why you were, we've been able to melt all that ice uh, continent-sized, millennia-old, meters-thick sheet of ice across the top of the planet. 
the planet looks different from outer space, profoundly different than it did when those first pictures from the Apollo missions came back in 1968 and 1969. You know, there's way less white on top than there used to be. I sometimes try to imagine what people looking on from a different galaxy would be making of what we're doing. You know, if they're looking at our Earth through a telescope, uh, through scientific instruments and trying to figure out what on Earth is going on, why there's this insanely rapid change in the atmosphere, what human beings could possibly be trying to accomplish. I mean, I think that if you were looking at it from a distance, a rational explanation would be that planet Earth had embarked on a large-scale mosquito ranching experiment because, really, mosquitoes are about the only organism that really love the wet, warm world that we're building for them. Ticks are fond of it, too, um, you know, so maybe, maybe that as well. But it must be baffling to if there are observers out in the cosmos trying to figure out what's going on. A, they must be baffled, and B, if they have any sense, they're staying far away from, <laughs> from what we're up to. In its history, Star Trek has had numerous episodes and films about environmental crises. Uh, for instance, The Mark of Gideon is about a desperately overpopulated planet. And you wrote a book titled Maybe One, The Case for Smaller Families. You have just one child yourself. And did you hesitate to have a child, knowing that her future is so endangered by what's happening to the planet? Mm. No, um, I didn't. And I'm very glad that we had a child because she's the best. <laughs> um, and I don't think that population is driving climate change at this point. In fact, population's one of those places where you actually can tell a kind of good news story about human agency. In the 1960s, there was a huge focus in the U.S. on population. Writers like Paul Ehrlich were, you know, talking about the population bomb. So it was no wonder that a Star Trek episode uh, fixated on that. Driven by that, uh, first in the United States, but then mostly around the developing world, people began to go to work on how to deal with this problem. And they did a pretty good job. The average woman 35 years ago had six children. That number is now 2.3 and continuing to fall. And the reason is overwhelmingly because people in the developing world figured out how to reduce fertility. It had everything to do with educating women and empowering them to one degree or another. It turns out that given the choice, most women don't want six children. Go figure, you know. <laughs> and so the good news is that humans saw a problem and rose to the occasion, dealt with it. Now, the, the population is going to keep increasing for another 20, 30 years because there's just a certain amount of demographic momentum. The mathematics of population mean that you can't put the brakes on immediately. But we think by mid-century, population will be plateauing and beginning to decline. And the increase that's coming over the next 20, 30 years is coming almost entirely in places that use so little energy that they're not a problem for climate change. I mean, I was just in Tanzania doing some work for The New Yorker about the expansion of solar power there. So I was looking at the numbers. The average American family uses more energy between the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve and dinner on January 2nd than the average Tanzanian family uses in the course of a year. So you know, 
in terms of causing climate change, they're a rounding error. In terms of getting hit by climate change, they're getting crushed by it, but it's not their fault and there's not that much they can do about it. Most of the problem at this point is rapidly increasing consumption in places with relatively stable populations, think China, it's not at all clear that the world can tolerate one continent living like North Americans, uh, very clear that it can't tolerate everyone living like North Americans, also very clear that everyone's going to try to if we keep insisting that this is the only possible way to be happy on the planet. Now, you yourself are actively involved in fighting climate change. Tell us about your organization, 350.org. So 350.org was the first global grassroots climate campaign. It takes its odd name from a scientific data point. 10 or 11 years ago, I asked Jim Hansen, the great NASA scientist, what's the number that we should be using to express this problem? And he said, you know, I've been sort of thinking that too. Maybe I'll go do some work with my team. And a few months later... He called up and sent me the preprint of the study that they were about to release at the American Geophysical Union, a study that said 350 parts per million CO2 was the most carbon you could safely have in the atmosphere if you wanted a planet anything like the one that humans had involved on or that life on Earth was adapted to which is very strong language for scientists to use. Now, we took that as our name in part because it's the most important number in the world, but in part because we wanted to work globally. And we figured that Arabic numerals would cross linguistic boundaries more easily than English words and phrases. People said, oh, it's too complicated. No one will be able to understand, you know, it's a bunch of numbers and so on. I said, I don't think it's that complicated. All you need to know is here's how much you could have and we're above it. It's like if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, your cholesterol's too high. You're in the zone where people have heart attacks. That's the moment that most people say to the doctor, okay, what, you know, what pill do I take? You know, how can I change my diet? Only real idiots go home from the doctor and start searching the internet for websites that say cholesterol doesn't exist, you know, or it's <laughs> not real or something. So it, so it turned out, you know, our first day of action was 10 years ago this last autumn, and we managed to coordinate 5,100 demonstrations in 181 countries around the world. CNN called it the most widespread day of political activity in the planet's history. They weren't as big as the great demonstrations of this last year, the ones that kind of followed Greta Thunberg and the school-striking youth who have done such a remarkable consciousness-raising job. But they were the beginning, the, the foundation on which much of that is built. And right from the start, there were lots of people who understood this is a hideous problem and we better get to it. In addition to uh, Greta and those children that did the walkouts in, in the classes, when a show like Star Trek dramatizes ecological issues, is that helpful? We certainly in the entertainment industry like to think we are helping, but can you tell us, are we? Absolutely. It's incredibly important to have this sort of top of mind. I mean, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge for 
activists is not changing the law. It's changing the zeitgeist, changing people's sense of what's normal and natural and obvious, what's what we need to do and what's happening. And, you know, this was the place where the fossil fuel industry spent so many billions of dollars trying to convince people that there was no problem. And for a lot of people, for a long time, that worked. I mean, hell, the president of the United States believes that climate change was a hoax invented by the Chinese, which is an idea delusional enough that if the guy next to you on the bus was muttering it, you would get up and change seats, you know. But the counter to that, the antidote to that is precisely lots of artists and writers and filmmakers and musicians and everybody else helping, you know, the scientists have done the best they can. Anybody who can be persuaded by bar graphs and pie charts has been persuaded by this point because the science is overwhelming. Uh, now we need to reach whatever the other hemisphere of the human brain is. I always forget what the left brain and the right brain, which one's in charge of what, but <laughs> one of them really likes bar graphs, and the other likes movies, you know? And so we, we need to reach that side too. Star Trek has always offered a positive vision of the future. Like it refers to the past, which is pretty much our present and uh, near future as going through dark times. But then the idea is that eventually humanity gets its act together and we're now peacefully exploring space. Do you feel that uh, science fiction has grown darker since... Star Trek first debuted in 1966. And do you think that's because of what's happening to the planet? Yeah, I think science fiction is often the most dystopian aisle in the bookstore. And I think it's because science fiction writers have taken upon themselves the duty, sort of uniquely, of taking characters, you know, people like you or I, and holding them up against the scale of modern technology whether it's the technologies causing climate change or artificial intelligence or human genetic engineering or any of the other things. And when they do that, they find that the scale of those things just overwhelms the human scale. And I think that's why so much of it is so dark and difficult. And we owe science fiction authors an enormous debt of gratitude for taking on that difficult task. Having said that, there is great writing going on, but I, I, I will say that I think the darkness of a lot of science fiction is a real warning that we've kind of moved past the exuberant moments of the 1960s where Star Trek had its birth and, and into a very different world. What does the future hold for planet Earth? Can you tell us, if you look 50 years in the future, what's the best outcome that you can foresee and what is the worst? The best outcome would have seemed like the worst outcome 50, 60, 70 years ago. No one would have believed it. But I mean, the best we can hope for at this point is that we hold the rise in temperature on this planet to about two degrees Celsius. If we do everything right at this point, the rapid conversion to renewable energy and so on, we, we, we might be able to do that, 1.5 to 2 degrees. That's at the bleeding edge of the technically possible. But if we did everything we could, Green New Deal and, you know, everything that Senator Sanders and Senator Warren and people are talking about, you know, maybe around the world we might be able to do that. If that happened, lots and lots of trauma and difficulty. We've raised the temperature one degree already, and that's caused the trouble I've described. Two degrees won't be twice as bad. It'll be much worse than that because this is going to be exponential, not linear, as we cross various tipping points. 
But perhaps we can build a world that kind of works like that. And if we do, well, there's certain things about it that could be sweeter. Uh, the move from fossil fuel to renewable energy, for instance, is a move from a world where power is held and concentrated in the hands of the small number of people who happen to be sort of camping atop the world's isolated supplies of hydrocarbons. These are mostly bad people, the Koch brothers, the king of Saudi Arabia, whatever, uh, who have extraordinarily outsized power simply because they control those supplies of oil and gas. It would be nice to replace that with power that comes from the sun and the wind and hence comes from everybody's town, you know, all over creation. That might be one of the ways that we ushered in a more localized, more democratic, uh, fairer, less inequitable world. So that's the good prospect, you know, a world that's uh, dealing with real difficulty, but dealing with it in a kind of ethic of human solidarity. The bad world, the world where the temperature is rising steadily and sharply, and where we're devolving not an ethic of human solidarity, but an ethic of, uh, you know, kind of look out for yourself, that one is truly terrifying. You've watched what happened over the last couple of years to the politics of Western Europe and of the United States, as in each case, a million refugees appeared on their borders. In the case of Western Europe, they were coming from Syria, driven by a civil war that in part was driven by the deepest drought in the history of what we used to call the Fertile Crescent. In the U.S. case, they were driven by, among other things, the deepest drought in the history of Honduras and Guatemala, which has made farming all but impossible for for many people. In each case, a million people was enough to short-circuit, discombobulate, fry the politics of those places. The ugliness that resulted is all around us. Now consider that the UN estimates that unabated global warming will produce perhaps a billion climate refugees in the course of this century. Multiply that discombobulation that we've seen so far by a thousand. A billion is a thousand million, I believe. And that would presage a world, a world you don't want to live on, is all I can say. Uh, the people who would take it absolutely hardest are, as always, the people who did the least to cause it, the people who live in the deltas of Bangladesh, the people who live on Pacific islands that are disappearing, the people who live in the parts of Africa that are turning to desert. But we're all going to take it in the chin. In fact, we already all are. I mean, when California has to be cutting off power to large parts of the state simply to prevent forest fires, which happened time and again this past autumn, that's a pretty good sign that we're already moved into the rapids right above the waterfall. I don't want to live in that kind of world, and I don't want my kids to live in that kind of world. I want us to fight as hard as we possibly can, not only to hold the temperature down, but to build the kind of world that we can survive what's coming on together. And how much hope do you have that we can do that? I don't really deal that much in hope or pessimism. Uh, I, I don't wake up each morning and wonder whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. You know, I wake up each morning thinking, how much trouble can I cause for the bad guys here? <laughs> how much can we move this needle today? We're embarking this 
this winter, spring, on a big campaign to try and take on the biggest banks in the world and asset managers and insurance companies. Chase Bank, one of the biggest banks in the world, uh, has spent $196 billion in financing for the fossil fuel industry in the last three years. They increased their lending dramatically since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. So we're going to try and get everybody in America to cut up their Chase credit card and close their account and go sit down in the lobby of the bank and do a teach-in. And if we do, maybe we can plug that pipeline of money to the fossil fuel industry, and that will help enormously slow down the onslaught of this machine. We're doing everything we can, and we need everybody doing it. Climate change is the graduation test for human beings. It's the test of whether the big brain was a useful evolution or not, you know. And uh, so far, the big brain's gotten us in a lot of trouble. It can help us get out of it, but it better be tied to a big heart as well. And that's what we're going to find out. Do you have a favorite Star Trek episode or character or even species? You know, corny as it sounds, I'm actually partial to um, Captain Kirk of the Shatner era simply because he manages to uh, display deeply human characteristics. Mm -hmm. uh, he's weak and vain in certain ways that human beings are, but also um, noble in the way that humans are capable of being. And, you know, we're a pretty remarkable species. We're causing lots of trouble right now, but most people, when you get to know them, are, are good and funny and kind and not so driven by greed and craziness that they'd be willing to uh, take the world down with them. So let's hope we can figure out how to kind of bring that character out in, in all of us uh, quickly. Star Trek has a lot of uh, inventions, uh, things that uh, make life a lot easier for the, uh, for the crew of the Enterprise. What fictional Trek invention do you think would be most helpful today? You have food <laughs> replicators, transporters, you have holodecks, dilithium crystals, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got actually the miracle technology that we need. I mean, the solar panel, if you think about it, is a miracle. You point a sheet of glass at the sun and out the back comes light and information and modernity. That's a Hogwarts scale miracle. Forget Star Trek, you know, I mean, that's we're talking like miracle miracles. And if we were smart, we would devote the next 10 or 20 years of human history to the single-minded task of putting them up everywhere we possibly can and adding wind turbines where we can't, you know. Um, um, and we've got the technology we need. We just have to use it. And we have to overcome the power of the fossil fuel industry that keeps us from doing it in time. Now, I have to ask you the question that I wanted to ask you right up top, but I restrained myself so I could have it as my sort of uh, dessert question. I believe there is a species of woodland gnat that is named after you. <laughs> Apparently this is so. Some kind <laughs> biologist discovered a new gnat and and I take it as a uh, uh, high honor because um, being a pest really is, you know, mostly what I do day in and day out. And you know, if I have served in my lifetime to annoy the rich and powerful a little bit, then I will have, uh, I'll be happy to live out whatever the, you know, the lifetime allotted me, hopefully slightly longer than a gnat's. 
and uh, call it a day. (laughs) That is my wish for you as well, Professor. Professor Bill McKibben, thank you so much for being with us today. And your new book is called Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Professor Bill McKibben, thank you so much. Exactly right. And let's hope we can keep the question mark in that title for as long as possible. Agreed. Oh, that was a lovely chat. Thank you, Tawny. Thank you. Look, tomorrow is an important day. Yeah. Well, depends on when you're listening to this, but at the time that this episode drops... I'm going to say tomorrow is always an important day, no matter when you're listening. That's as true. As Bill McKibben said. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this we obviously this comes out on a Monday, and tomorrow, as of this recording, is election day. For our U.S.-based listeners. Yeah, hopefully everyone uh, uh, that is eligible to vote tomorrow um, has a plan. If you don't, uh, get one together. You know, make sure that you fill out your ballot, drop it off in person, you know, either at the polling place or at the uh, the drop box. Um, but please do vote. It's, it's important and it makes a difference. And I would also like to add that if you're a Trek fan or if you're a fan of This Very Earth, I'd love you to keep those ideals in mind when you vote for somebody. Maybe vote for someone who also seems to care about this very earth. But it's up to you. Yeah. The choice is yours. It's up to you, but Picard is always watching. Picard is always All of your Star Trek heroes are watching you in the ballot box. <laughs> They're in the ballot box? Are you in the box? They're watching in you the in the ballot box. Booth. Yeah, They're you're judging the you. Box. They're thinking about you. <laughs> Look, neither of us have ever voted. We don't want to get jury duty. <laughs> So we don't know what we're talking about. Is that how about. you get jury duty? No, that's a myth. That's an old That's an old legend. They wouldn't vote because they thought that's how you get jury duty. Oh, that sounds like sneaky voter suppression. It really does. Like, hey, you know this annoying thing everyone hates? Yeah, exactly. If you exactly. don't vote, you don't have to do it. Oh, what a dirty trick. Also do jury duty. It's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. You love hearing about a murder in a podcast. Why don't you go try and help a real one? <laughs> you hypocrites. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I hope no one has to hear about a murder. I hope everyone's safe. I hope everyone um, who's able to votes tomorrow. This is a little off the rails, but you guys, at this point, you're here for some reason, and it's probably part of it is us. So, hey man, everything's off the rails right now. So why should we be any different? Turbulent times, man. Turbulent times. Turb times. Uh, Thank you for listening, and uh, we really appreciate it. Please do subscribe to the show if you haven't yet. Uh, Spread the word about it. Rate and review us on the places where you rate and review things. And um, we look forward to being back with you next week, no matter what happens. Yep. (laughs) We'll be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Want more Trek? If you live in the U.S., go to CBS All Access for classic episodes of Star Trek The Original Series, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Enterprise, and new seasons of Star Trek Discovery, and Star Trek Picard. In Canada, watch Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard on Bell Media's CTV Sci-Fi Channel. Star Trek Discovery streams on Netflix in 188 countries. And Star Trek Picard does the same on Amazon Prime. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Pew, 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 pew. Pew, pew, pew.